Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Um, so today's teaching text comes from Mark 5, 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then, he, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we get into this passage today. And so, Father, we're here and um, we're singing to you about who you are and your character and how that, um, the story that you're telling and our stories, how these things like are on this crash collision course And I just pray this morning as we um, open your word that you would be found trustworthy, that you would be found um, faithful and kind and good. And as we sing, um, we would be reminded of these truths. Help our unbelief. Help us to know that you care and that you are in our midst. And may we be a church that embodies this good news for other people. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Amen. All right, so in Mark chapter 5, we find three people falling at the feet of Jesus. Number one, a frantic demon-possessed man. We talked about him last week, good times. Uh, Number two, a fearful father. And number three, a dying 
woman. And falling at the feet of Jesus, they find everything they could ever need. And there is a key to understanding this passage because clearly it's complex, right? There's actually kind of a a sandwich format to what's happening. Jairus, his daughter, and then in the middle, this unnamed and culturally unclean woman. But in verse 34, and if you want to pull it up and follow along, that would probably be helpful for you today in Mark chapter 5. In verse 34, it says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And then in verse 36, Jesus says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. In the original language, these are the exact same word. Uh, In the Greek, it's the word pistis. It means um, to have faith or to believe. And so the conclusion that, um, that we should come to, that the writer is trying to get us to come to, is that um, there's a measure of faith involved in our life. How do we have such faith? In the book of Hebrews, uh, we get a definition of faith. The writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. And then in a more literal translation, the NASB, it says, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for and proof of things not seen. I read this probably a dozen times this week, and I kept getting more and more frustrated. Think about these words. Faith is the certainty, certainty of things hoped for, right? (laughs) Proof of things not seen. I'm like, I have way more questions than answered after reading this, right? Certainty about things you hope for. Those those seem as far apart as like me and Gen Z culture, all right? Like those things are very, very far apart. Or think about this, proof of things not seen. How do you prove things that you can't see? And so I kept getting frustrated as I was reading this passage. And the questions that I, I, I started coming to was like, wait, is, is the Bible actually just telling me that faith is just blind? Like, you just, you just got to take the leap. Like, you just got to take a step. You just got to have more faith, right? Or I, I think I'm actually prone to thinking of faith more as like a transaction that I can have with God. Like, if things are going well and I have a lot of faith, then like God will reciprocate that like care, right? Like, I've had times in my life where I think, God, I desperately want you to speak to me. I want your direction. And in fact, I think I could say with a pure heart, I think I could say, wow, God, I really want what you want for me. Like, I I want that. And so show me what that is. Show me what that is. And then on the other end, I'm like, God, I'm having faith. Why are you silent? And so is faith like a a transaction in that sense? Or or if on the back end of that, did did I say, do I lack faith? Like, was faith something that I thought I had, but I actually didn't have, and it's just this elusive thing that I'm just not really going to get? Or you maybe have had a time in your life where someone came to you and said, I I know things are hard right now, but you just got to have faith. And you're like, in what? And they're like, in faith. Like, I don't don't know. It just seems a little bit vague, right? Like, what am I supposed to have faith on? Or is faith a scale? Like, is it a sliding scale? Like, my faith actually just needs to be, like, at least 51%. And then, like, God will answer and hear my prayers, right? Or it's like, faith need to be, like, 75% sure. Or does it mean 90% sure? Does, it, does faith actually need to be perfect? Like, is that, is that the goal of us even gathering? Like, we're trying to figure out, how do I trust and lean on and put my faith in Jesus? And it's just like, I'm trying to come here and perfect it. This is the classroom where I come and perfect my idea of faith. Is that what it is? I like um, this writer, Christian Wyman. He says, faith steals upon you like dew. Some days you wake, and it's there, and like dew, it get burns off in the rising sun of anxieties, ambitions, and distractions. And I'm like, that feels like faith to me. 
Like, it's there in the morning, right? Um, Lamentation chapter 3, it's like, his mercies are new every morning. Like, it's, it's fresh and new every morning. My faith is rejuvenated. And then the morning sun comes, the anxieties, the ambitions, the to-do lists, the tasks, the distractions, the phones. Then it's all of a sudden, it's like, it's gone. Like, what, what happened? And then for some of us in the room, we'd say, you know, I actually know that this faith word is involved with this other word called trust. And like I trusted people and I put my faith in them and they said they would never leave me. They told me they would, they would be there for me. They told me that they would care for me and then they failed me. And so faith is a really hard topic, right? Because people hurt us along the way. We've been betrayed and backstabbed and we'd say faith involves trust, I'm out, right? And so clearly this idea of faith and, and belief and trust is something that we really need to wrestle with. Because there's a lot of complexity involved in the process. And so here's my working definition of faith today. Is that faith is trusting that God is who he says he is and that he'll do all he promised to do. Faith is trusting that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do all he's promised to do. Now, uh, I want to be really clear about something today. I'm, I'm not going to get into the nuances of the things that Jesus promised to do today. I think that's in, in one sense what we're doing every week is we're trying to figure out what has God promised and what does that look like. But um, I want to stay in this space of us understanding what faith is. And this story is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guide to understanding faith. And so here's what's happening in the story. We have two people coming to Jesus, and they have a measure of faith, right? You're gonna, um, we're not going to get an exact percentage, but maybe you could give them a percentage today of what exactly that looks like. And you'll see a little bit of complexity, but Jesus crosses the other side. And basically all that means is that he was in Gentile territory last week and early uh, in, in the book of uh, chapter five of Mark. And now he's coming back to a predominantly Jewish territory. These are his people. These are where he's been building a large crowd and we see large crowds. Jesus had an incredible draw to him. And so people are coming. And a man by the name of Jairus comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. And the text, I don't know, I don't quite understand why. I think it's two possible possibly three times that it tells us that Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. And that doesn't mean he's a rabbi. It likely means that he's a prominent man. Um, he takes care of, uh, of the scrolls. He takes care of the facilities. Uh, he teaches a bit about the law. But he would probably be well-known and prestigious in the community. And um, Mark's, Mark's trying to emphasize this, right? Here's a prominent man in the community, and here's this unclean woman. And he's, he's basically trying to put, put a gap between who Jesus is interacting with in this sense. And we find that this man, Jairus, has great need, right? He falls at the feet of Jesus. Now, you'd imagine a prominent man coming to a, a largely unknown Jewish rabbi who's building a following and comes to his feet begging. What does he say? He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so, Really, we have to let this sort of sink in because if not, we're going to run past the story and not actually understand what's happening. This man is desperate. This man is likely numb with grief and horror, and he's at the end of his rope. And in fact, the, the, the fact that, his, um, that he falls on his knees shows us that his posture matches his plea. His posture matches his plea. He's like, I'm on my knees. I have nothing left. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm going to lose the person I love most in this world, my daughter. And so... He comes to the feet of Jesus, and Jesus responds, and Jesus says, I'll go to your house. And so he's walking to Jairus' house, and all of a sudden, he's walking through a large crowd of people, and he encounters an unnamed and culturally unclean woman. Here's what verse 25 says. It says, and there was a woman 
who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And listen to verse 26. It sort of builds the intensity of the scenario builds here. Who had suffered much under many physicians. She went to all the doctors and spent all that she had. She has no money now and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And so this woman wants a sort of anonymous healing. Like she, she doesn't want like a firm encounter. She doesn't want to be um, made a show of. She just wants to like in the crowd, just like peek out and just like touch the robe, right? And, and really what you have here is a sort of magic-tainted superstition, um, really like a misguided belief about who Jesus is and, and what he came to do, but she just wants to reach out, right? Like if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then he's going to transfer holiness to me and I'm going to be made well. She wants an anonymous healing, and yet she's healed. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, who touched my garments? And then verse 33, it says, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, the healing, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Here's my whole story. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, your faith has made you well. The woman believed. Jairus believed. But like, what was their faith? Like, what, what, what was it on the scale? Was it like 51%? Was it perfect? Because as I read the story, I don't, I don't think that it's perfect, right? I don't think the story is perfect. Jairus, to me, has a desperate faith. He's got this faith where the person he loves most is at death's door. That's the kind of faith that he has. He's got thoughts and prayers faith, like at the end of his rope faith. And what about the unnamed woman? She has superstitious faith, right? She sees Jesus as a miracle worker, a, a healer. I don't know. She doesn't really want to like engage much more than that. She just wants to touch him and, and be gone. She knows Jesus can heal me. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes their weak desperate and at points misguided faith and they place it on the person of Jesus and Jesus honors it. He honors their weak faith. You think that you can just hide and touch the corner of my garment and it'll make you well? I'll start there. You have entry-level faith? I'll start there. You think you can come to church every six months and worship me? I'll start there. You pray every once in a while? You pray only when you're desperate? I'll start there. You have traditional faith where, where you say, this is what we've always done. Jesus is like, I'll start there, right? It's not well thought out. Like, they can't defend the doctrine of the Trinity. Like, that's, that's not the point, right? They come and they say, this is what I have. And Jesus says, I will start there. Both of them have weak, desperate, and at points misguided faith. And Jesus says, I'll start there. Here are two verses um, from Scripture that really give us some texture to this idea of faith. Paul, this is both Paul here. In 2 Timothy, he says, if we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Like, this is who our God is. You and I, weak, fickle, falling short, but not our God. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. 2 Corinthians 12, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect where? In weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest in me. And so welcome, if you have weak 
fickle faith this morning, you find yourself in really good company. I like what Tim Keller says. He says, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you, right? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Um, maybe you imagine it sort of like this. Um, maybe your uh, favorite color, say, is neon, uh, neon orange. And t- say you came to me and you said, Russell, I really want to go bungee jumping. And you said, I want to go bungee jumping with this yarn right here. All right? That's very dangerous, guys. Like, why would you want to do that? That's not cool that you want to go bungee jumping with this yarn, right? What if you said to me, though, like, this is my favorite neon orange thread, and you know what? You look at that yarn, and you say, I'm just going to get, like, a long, long line of it. And you came to me, and you said, you know what, Russell, I believe with everything in me that that would hold me, and that would carry me. I would say, you're dumb. You are dumb, right? I would say, no, do not do that. Just because you believe that this will hold you, that doesn't mean that it will. Why? Because strong faith in a weak rope or your favorite colored rope, it can't sustain you, but even weak faith in a strong rope could hold you. Why? Because it's not the strength of your faith but the object of your faith that saves you, right? And so you and I come and we say, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I have a lot of questions. Like, I, I feel like I'm all over the place. My heart is anxious. My head is it's all over, right? And I think that Jesus honors that. Like, I, I, you know, one of the things that's so funny about our culture is um, we're very reactionary. Like, you, you turn on the news and, like, some tragedy happens and it's like thoughts and prayers. And in one sense, I look at that and I'm like, you know what? Good. God honors those thoughts and prayers, like in a really genuine way. Like God hears those prayers. But the cool thing about this story is it does not end there, right? Like I want to affirm that in you. Like if that's you today and you'd say, you know, I'm just like, I'm trying to navigate some things. I'm trying to figure it out. I feel weak. I feel fickle. All those things. You're in good company, but the text doesn't end there. And this is what's so brilliant. Jairus and the, women, and the woman, they come to Jesus and they say, here's my bounce. Here's, here's what I want you to do. Jairus is like, hey, I want you to come with me. Come heal my daughter before she dies. And this, in this text, I was sort of imagining this week, like my, my own daughter was sick. And if Jesus was coming um, to help me and he gets interrupted, like what is Jairus doing? Like, dude, like, no, like, let's go, right? Like if you and I are at a restaurant, like, and the waiter, like, takes our order, and then, you know, she's bringing us, he or she is bringing us the food, starts helping someone else. You're like, yo, like, come on. Like, we're working at this table, right? We don't care about what's happening at that table. And I think um, there's a sense of frustration. Like, Jesus, you said you were going to come with me, and now you're doing something different, right? You said you were going to come. And then the woman, she, she seems to sort of want, like, this sort of drive-through prescription, right? She doesn't want to go into the drugstore. She's not going into CVS. She wants to go through the drive-through. She wants the delivery, right? I just want the thing that's going to make me well. I don't want a personal transaction. Like, I, want, I just want to pass by, touch the garment, and leave. And the woman thought she was getting this quick and quiet healing. And Jesus is like, actually, come here, because you're about to go public with this thing. You're about to go public with your faith. And Jairus, he thought he was going to get a quick at-home healing, but rather he's going to get a resurrection. And this unlocks the nature of faith. Jesus honors weak faith. That's true and that stands. But faith also inherently means letting go of control. Faith inherently means letting go of control. And, and hear me well, like, I, I understand that this is unpopular. Like, 
letting go of control, and being taken where we don't want to go. And so where are my type A's at? Just call yourself out here. All right. Welcome. I see you. I see you in your running to-do lists. All right. I see you and your vacation spreadsheets. All right. I see you and your plans. Okay. Even if you're not type A, we, we, we have this sense in us, right? Like we're in control, right? We got plans. We're pretty sure we know the pathway after graduation. We know what the marriage looks like. We, we have the thing charted out in a vision for the future. And then here's this guy saying, faith inherently means letting go of control, right? How unnatural. Like you're like, no, 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 no. You don't know. I got a plan. I got it figured out. Uh, a couple months ago, a friend of mine, it was actually Will, I'm going to call you out, um, he's telling me about this app called Notion, and it's this project management note-taking software. Any, any like Notion nerds in here? Okay, so this is going to revolutionize like my world, your world. I've been watching YouTube videos, reading articles, and basically, I, I'm going to organize my life so well, like nothing is ever going to fall through the cracks. I'm going to crush New Year's resolutions. My kids' college funds are actually getting money in them. Like I'm going to read the Bible nine times next year. Like, it's going to be amazing, right? Get this dashboard in my app set up. It's going to be like perfect, right? I got it under control. I got the future mapped out. And I'm, I don't know, maybe I should just call myself out here. I'm a little bit weird on this. But like on Friday mornings, Friday is like my day to write sermons. And so what I do is I get to the office and I start cleaning and organizing. I take everything out of my backpack and put it back together. Um, I take a piece of paper and I write down, like, here's when I want to write this part and here's when I want to write this part between these times and these times. Um, I'll organize my desk, stack books, like, these are the ones I need to look at and read still. These are the ones that are completed and I'll put them away. And I, f I feel like I have this sort of um, idea that if I can control the external world, right? Like, if I can control all the circumstances on the outside, then I'm going to have peace on the inside, and then I can work, right? And so there's this sort of pathway that we have where even culturally, we, we live in a culture um, of expertise, right? Just like find your niche thing, and if you can do that well, you will succeed. If you can be proficient in your one area, then you can, can succeed. And that's what the culture is telling us, right? Like if you're sick, you just need a proficient doctor to fix you. If you're poor, you just need to work harder. If there are wars, you need proficient negotiators. Like, this is our world. Like, control, put it in the box, and you know what to do. And yet, we can look and say, but there are still problems in our world, right? There are people proficient in this, yet there are still wars. And the reason is, is because control has always, always, always been an illusion. Life is wildly out of our control. Here's, a, here's how um, James says it in James 4. He says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And here's a scripture that just matches our reality. Like, this is just, <laughs> this is just true. You're like, I, I made the plans and they all fell through, Right? If we, we push back against this faulty thinking, right? If I could just get organized enough. If I could just get my emotions in check. But see, faith ceases to be faith when we're trying to manage all of its outcomes. When we say, I want the anonymous healing. I want you to come right now with me. And, and for me personally, this is a really big step in my journey of just of letting go. And it's, it really is a journey. 
but to believe, okay, life is immeasurably out of my control, and yet I'm still safe. When I was nine years old, uh, my parents... um, my parents were divorced, and um, I primarily lived with my dad in Phoenix, but my mom uh, moved to San Diego to pursue a degree in law. And so my sisters and I would, you know, regularly be shuffled back and forth. And I think it's about a five and a half or a six hour drive. But I remember this one time um, that I was with my mom in San Diego, and she put me on a plane back to see my dad by myself. I was nine years old. My parents seemed really calm about it. I generally wasn't worried about it. And then we started taking off and um, out of San Diego, and I'm, you know, I'm sitting in the window seat, and next to me there's this mom and uh, her son. He was probably about the same age as I was, and I'm looking out the window on this flight, and I look down, and there's ocean below us, and I start panicking. I'm like, San Diego to Phoenix, like it's only desert. Like I know this, I've driven this so many times, but I'm flying over the ocean right now. And so like my nine-year-old like anxiety brain is triggered, like I'm catastrophizing everything like on my flight to Hawaii right now, like could it be hijacked? Like how did Kevin McAllister do it? Like I'm just like, I've got all the pathways like figured out. No joke, I'm panicking so much as we're taking off. I unbuckle my seatbelt, stand on my seat, and I start pushing, like, the, the flight attendant button to, like, come and to, to see me. And, like, um, they're not coming. I, I can't remember. They, maybe they made an announcement on the thing that was like, yo, we're not coming. We're still taking off. You know, like, we're over the ocean, dude. We're not coming. And so I start dry heaving. And the mom next to me is giving me this vomit bag. I start throwing up an id on myself and on the seat. And um, it was just absolutely terrible. And you know what's absolutely savage is the one thing I really remember about this is that while the mom was nice to give me this vomit bag, after they came and explained to me that, you know, they take off and then they turn around, like that's just the way the design is. It's pretty simple. Um, she requested new seats for her and her son. So there I am sitting by myself on the rest of the flight after having this panic attack. And if you think about it, like, there's like nothing more out of your control than being on an airplane, which is probably why there's like all these uh, issues going on on airplanes um, right now. But faith ceases to be faith when we try and manage all the emotions, right? When we try to figure out and catastrophize and do all the things that we need to do, and the goal then becomes trust over control. Trust that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do all the things that he promised to do. Um, Our staff team has been uh, reading a book. Um, It's called In the Name of Jesus um, by Henry Nouwen. I think it's like a 90-page little pamphlet. It's absolutely brilliant. In fact, if you want to know what Reunion believes Christian leadership should look like, like that would be the go-to book, In the Name of Jesus. But um, this is what Henry Nouwen says about being led where you would not rather go. The world says, when you were young, you were dependent and could not go where you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll be able to make your own decisions, go your own way, and control your own destiny. But Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. And if I could think of any way to describe the journey um, that's being described here in Mark chapter 5, this would be it, right? A journey of saying, hey, life is wildly out of control, but if if I'm going to go anywhere, it would be where Jesus wants me to go. It would be following his lead and to simply say at the end of it, you know what, I, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but Jesus' way is better than my way. Jesus' way is better than my way. And yet the text is not done. Verse 35 says this. While he was still speaking, he just healed the woman. 
There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And we know the rest, right? Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is resurrected. It's an incredible story. In the Greek, it's me phobeo monon pistou. It means, it means no fear, only faith. Like it's like the premier like Christian t-shirt, right? No fear, only faith. And I look at it and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Dude just lost his daughter and Jesus says no fear, only faith. But it's a little bit misleading. The original language, the, the word is present tense and it's an imperative, meaning this. Don't fear, keep believing. Don't fear, keep believing. And so is fear coming? Probably, right? Fear is going to come and go. That's just a reality of the world that we live in, right? Life is wildly out of our control, and we feel that, right? Fear is coming, but, or maybe the, maybe the better word is and. Fear not and keep believing. Fear not and keep believing. Keep holding on to faith rather than giving into the despair of the moment. One commentator I read this week said, faith is not something Jairus has, but something that has Jairus carrying him from despair to hope. Faith is not something Jairus has, but something that has Jairus, right? Fear would be real in that moment. I can't even imagine, right? The, the weight that you would feel. You're, you just heard that your daughter is dead, and yet Jesus comes to you and says, fear not, keep believing. Fear in that moment tells Jairus that his future is closed. Fear to nine-year-old Russell says, you're going to Hawaii and you're never going to see your parents again, right? Fear says your friends will give up on you. Fear says there's not enough money for rent. Fear says you're not good enough to make it on Broadway. And can fear be helpful? Yes, fear can be helpful. It can be a really good signifier of what's going on in your life. And I don't want to be overly simplistic about this, but I think in the midst of our fear, what we actually need to hear is, and keep believing. Fear, present, yes, and keep believing. And this is the journey of faith trusting that God is who he says he is and that he'll do all he's promised to do. And I think about that idea of trust. Is that a choice? Is trust a choice? Right? There's, of course, factors involved, right? Should you give your trust to someone? Should you allow yourself uh, that level of openness to someone? And ultimately, I think trust is a choice. But it's in a God who, set, who does what he says and is and will do all he's promised to do. And so, I want to practice this together, together today. The band is going to come up here in just a second, um, but I want to pray together, and I want to give you a, a tool um, to, to pray. Um, it's just called Palms Down and Palms Up, and that's, that's going to be kind of how we um, end. And the thing that got me thinking about this was, um, in, in my reading, I was reading about um, how his posture matched his plea. And I thought, beautiful, that's what we need. We need a posture to match the plea of our hearts. And so um, if you have anything in your lap, um, maybe you just want to set it down. Um, if you're comfortable, you could close your eyes, and I'll um, kind of walk us through this guided prayer. No one's looking at you, don't worry. And we're just going to allow ourselves for our posture to match our plea. And so if you just want to put your hands out in front of you, and maybe this is a struggle for you, um, but it's just going to be three, four minutes of silence, if nothing else. And so with your palms down, here's what you're going to do. You're going to release whatever's on your mind or whatever's troubling you. Maybe imagine um, 
Imagine you have sand in your hand and you put your palms down and it just falls effortlessly out of your hands. And inwardly you may pray, Lord, I release my anxiety to you. I release my desire to control to you. I release my struggle with my finances to you. I release to you my fear of pregnancy, of moving, of work, of school, of future. And so just hold your hands there and, and, and pray that, God, I release this to you. And so we release that, but then we turn our palms upward because we believe our God is a giver of good gifts and we receive. And so with that posture of receptivity, like imagine someone is giving you a gift with your hands up. Perhaps you just want to pray silently, Lord, I would like to receive your joy. Lord, I would like to receive your grace. Lord, I would like to receive your patience and kindness towards me. And so take a moment to pray what you need, knowing that God is a giver of good gifts. And so, Father, there are things that we say palms down to, and we want to release those things. We don't want those to uh, control us, to consume us. And as we let those things go, we turn our hands up to say, we believe again, we have faith again that you can give us everything that we need. The individuals in the story, they fall at your feet, and they find everything that they could need. And this is not vague, God. We're not here because uh, we just believe this pie-in-the-sky ethereal thing. But, God, we believe that you can renew us, that you can make us whole, that you can work in our bodies, that you can work in our minds, that you can work in our hearts to restore us. And so I pray today that we would be met by your love. And even as we go into this time of communion, to be reminded of the brutal sacrifice of your cross and the things that you've done to accomplish our salvation. It is the thing that we have uttermost faith in, that you are a God that didn't stay distant, but you came, and because you so loved us, you went on the cross for us. And we come to be reminded of your sacrificial nature and your ultimate resurrection. And so, God, would you meet us in this time of communion together? We desperately need you and we love you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.